Thanks for coming on the pod, York. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks to be with you guys. So I was telling Vasant about all the wild stuff you were telling me about neural implants and futurism and all this stuff. And he asked me what you did. And I don't want to like misstate it, you know, and especially because my background is software. So maybe you can say in your words, like, what is it that you do? Yeah. So I was a, a chemie in undergrad and I decided that in my last year of college that it was the wrong path to go town. And so I decided to go into rocket propulsion instead. And basically I've been working in development and testing uh, of, you know, liquid rocket engines for startups, NASA, now Blue Origin. But on the side, I like to dabble in, you know, other technology fields as well. And one thing that has particularly caught my eye because of its interdisciplinary field was brain machine interfaces or BCIs or BMIs, actually, there's actually two terms. But yeah, I just like stuff that seems to work well with technology and the intersection of people and what it means to be human. Cool. Very sci-fi. Yeah, you were telling me before, actually, that that this is actually fundamental technology to space exploration is being able to hook into your brain, neural implants and all that. Yeah. So, you know, if you think about it, we're really fragile meat bags trying to make space an environment in which we can thrive. And so one way to look at it is we adapt the space to us, but you can also do the reverse. If we adapt our bodies to the environment, that opens up an entirely different field of exploration. And so something that I brought up last time is, you know, what is the best way to explore a new planet? And it might not be in a human form. It might actually be like a cheetah with eight legs or something like that, right? But like, you don't necessarily know what the right design is because it's not like you can randomly select it out of the hat and be like, yep, this is the thing to do. It's really, you come down to it based on, you know, a lot of trial and error and you might end up with a solution that is completely non-intuitive. So a good example of that would be what's the best way to deliver Wi-Fi to the entire world. And if you were to say right off the bat, oh, it's to use hot air balloons that are able to rise and fall depending on the temperature during the time of day, that's how we do internet. And no one would say that, but there is a company, unfortunately it's now shuttered, but it was a, a project out of X, which was Google's like research arm and it was called Project Loon. And that was the design they came up with. And the design philosophy they had was, how do we quickly kill an idea? And how do we continuously kill it throughout its development process? And what they end up finding is the ideas that refuse to die end up being very resilient and produce very counterintuitive designs and solutions. And so like, I think about you know, that in regards to, to neurotech and space is we've been doing space for like 60, 70 years in a particular way, but there is definitely untouched fields that we've just never thought about because we've always been thinking that we need to adapt space to us, but the opposite can be totally true and valid. Have you heard of anti-fragility? Yeah, by uh, Nassim Taleb, right? Yeah, yeah he also yeah. wrote the, the Black Swan book as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah so precisely that. Yeah, could you just explain what anti-fragility is? Yeah, so anti-fragility is this, I wouldn't call it a design philosophy, but it's the idea that in times of turmoil, your system actually gets better over time in response to that stimulus, as opposed to how most people think about problem solving, which is I the system can only work under explicit conditions. But once those conditions are failed, then the entire system goes down with it. So in a sense, you can also say uh, shorting a stock is a form of anti-fragility, right? When everyone is panicking that their portfolio is tanking, you're still making out like a robber and, you know, oh, wait, you know, shout out to the big short and all that good stuff. So anti-fragility is a, a super great concept when you think about how do you, how do you, how are you able to create a system that is able to weather 
unforeseeable circumstances and things you can't even predict, right? You have that whole Punnett square of things you know and things that you don't know and known knowns and unknown unknowns, right? right. The unknown unknowns is you, you can't predict it or prepare for it at all. But if your system is robust enough, then yeah, anti-fragility will make a light out of the darkness. It's, it's sort of like the idea of a chaos monkey in software applications. Yeah, you know that I can explain this because this is in the software domain. So Netflix created this thing, which is like at the time when they introduced it, people thought this was wild, where they would have this system called Chaos Kong. And what it would do is it would just go in and randomly take out Netflix's servers. This was their own tool that was essentially like malware that they said, just kill them. And like the, there, there were some which were just like destroy like small servers here and there. And there were some which were like, take out an entire region, act like an entire like like section, like Europe, AWS servers are gone. And the reason they did this was they said, you have to make sure that when we give you these crazy drills, your systems will hold up. So when it actually happens, we've literally done this a hundred times or a thousand times. So if AWS goes down, like we're fine. So there have been times where like, you know, AW, some section of AWS goes down and then people, then there's like a news report. Oh, half the internet is down, but Netflix is never a hit because they bake in anti-fragility into their development practices. I, I was reading the distributed systems engineers at Netflix get paid like $2 million a year for this exact reason, because this is this is what they're building, right? They're building distributed systems that will never fail regardless of what happens. But York, but I wanted to go back to the thing you were saying, which is the idea of changing the human body to better adapt to an environment that we cannot foresee yet. How sci-fi is that in the space, like in the, in the space of space? or the space industry, are people really thinking about adapting or changing human biology as a reasonable way of getting to space? So I think that that idea is very futuristic, right? Like if you want to point to examples of sci-fi that's being produced right now, you can look at altered carbon with the whole uh, stacks, the cortical stacks. You can even look at Ghost in the Shell, which I think is one of the, the seminal works in terms of- One of the coolest animes that, of all time, yeah. Yeah, and so it's, it's still a very relevant topic today, but- I don't really see people thinking about, you know, augmenting the human body for space. I think we've barely begun to scratch the surface of just augmenting the human body, period, let alone just on Earth. But I can definitely see that becoming much more reasonable to pursue in terms of like, you know, total R&D costs when we actually do have a stable foothold in, in space. But right now, as it is, we're, we're clamoring to even get beyond low earth orbit, you know, like the, the ISS is eventually going to be retired and commercialized. And we've got two of the gigantic aerospace companies, one that, of which I'm working for, trying to just get to the moon again. So I would say it's probably, I don't know, 200 years old. But the thing is, the rate of innovation improves if you have more people contributing to the system. And if you lower the basic level of sort of like adequacy and education, right? So like there's a, there's a book by Peter Diamandis called Abundance, which talks about how to get the rest of the world plugged into this global economy. And so the, the basic gist is that there is a whole lot of untapped potential because these are people who live in regions where they don't have basic health, basic energy, basic water, basic internet. But once everybody, quote unquote, comes online, now there's innovation happening everywhere. So the rate of innovation goes up tremendously. And I would even make the case that maybe the rate of the rate of innovation even goes up. But it was, it's very interesting because I was talking with somebody the other day and he was saying, we actually live in a time with so much information and abundance, but we're not really moving the needle that quickly. 
because you have examples of like MOOC, MIT, OpenCourseWare, Coursera, edX. And there's just this abundance of information, but there seems to be a lack of application, right? It's like everyone has all the information, but how many people are actually going the extra mile and using that information beyond just casually, passively sitting to a lecture and saying, I know this. It's like, no, you don't know this. You know enough about it to parrot it, but you don't know enough about it to flexibly bend the concept to actually create something that is real. And that's either in the form of hardware or software, but hardware specifically is sort of my, my domain. So I've always looked at it as, what are you learning to actually create hardware that you can drop in someone's hand and say, I made this, I can explain how I made it and I can explain how it works. So I, I, so I, I like 80% like agree with you, 20% disagree. So I'll tell you why. So I think that the reason, so the reason that I, that I disagree, I'll tell you that first is because like, we're seeing stuff being made that could never have been conceived of before. Like little, like startups are doing, are creating new types of computers. Raspberry Pi was created by a startup, you know, Arduino was created by a startup. And now like people, like my last company, instead of making our own computer for our first 3d printer, we literally bought raspberry Pis and we stuck them into our printer. And that was how we shipped our first product. So like this kind of thing, like never would have been doable. Like a person like me and my friends from college who built this company, we could not have possibly done that even 20 years ago. However, the reason I 80% agree with you is that like, I'm impressed that this stuff is happening now, but I'm impressed because compared to previously, like maybe, 1% of people are able to do this, whereas before 0.1% of people are. So the reason I 80% agree with you is because we need to get to like 50, 60, 70. Yeah, getting as many people plugged in is, is super important. Like, I definitely think the the spread of how so, like how computer science is taught is, is a great model, right? You're essentially lowering the barrier such that anybody with a computer and internet access can now do things that they normally couldn't have done. And so... It's kind of like the example that I like to use with drones, right? When the person who created drones created it, they weren't thinking, oh, this is all the stuff they can do. They would be like, hey, this is a really cool thing. I just want to show it off, right? But now we have drone applications for like transporting blood to, to battlefields, dr transporting pizza for delivery, Amazon Prime and all these different things. So the point isn't to tell people what to do with the technology, you know, obviously within ethical bounds, but really create the tool and distribute it to as many people and be surprised by what they come up with. So it almost sounds like the existing sort of distribution applications that we have now are pretty great. It's just that we don't have them in, into enough people's hands. Or are you actually saying that we need to build a bunch of new applications that need to get information and the abundance of information that we have to new people? I think we, so I think there's a, there's an abundance of information. I think there needs to be a greater focus on actually using the tools in a sort of direct one-to-one -one simulation. So there's a, there's a company called Synthesis that was born out of SpaceX's Astro School because Elon didn't like how education was done. And so he just built his own school. And their whole thing was, how do you get kids to be self-motivated and interested enough to continue to pursue these intellectual uh, fields that they, they want to work in? And it's all about getting them to be in an environment where they're encouraged to build actual stuff, right? Whether it's, you know, building their own cryptocurrency within a sandbox classroom experience, or actually going to understand how a, an engine works by literally taking it apart and getting instructions. So I think the emphasis needs to be not just, hey, here's all this info, but this is what the info will do. And actually, how do you build those skills? Because I think the best way to learn is with hands-on. And that's sort of what recruiters talk about all the time, right? You need to demonstrate you've actually built something 
as opposed to you and 50 other similar candidates all saying, yeah, I took this class. 100%, 100%. I, I, yeah, I was a hiring manager. So I probably looked through like 300 resumes and I would see these really weird projects on people's resumes where it's like, oh, we created a database that would tell you about congressional voting hit, uh, records. And I'd see that on one resume. Then I'd see the next one and it'd be the exact same project. I'd be like, ah, it was a class project. Yeah. <laughs> and the people who I'd bring in who like actually built something because they thought it was fun are, were just like miles better programmers than the people who just did class projects. Yeah. And so like, that's where we're seeing this neurotechnology going, right? So like sort of circle back to the topic is yeah. people now are able to leverage faster, reliable and cheaper forms of, of sensor measurements, right? And now is there stuff, the, is there, is there open, like if I wanted to mess around with this, I could just like buy commercial stuff and use it to measure my brain? Not yet, but there is a company called Neurable based in Boston. Oh, I is, know those, I'm on their newsletter. Yeah, yeah. So they they had an Indiegogo uh, fundraiser for the N10 headphone. And that's basically, it looks very similar to a Bose QC35 because the engineer who worked on it was also a Bose engineer. And it's essentially a productivity uh, headphone. And so it's got noise canceling. It's got like some sort of motion control to it. But essentially, it's a way to measure how productive you are. And so they've actually focused on weaving the ECG sensors into the foam pads of the headphones. So it's not like, you know, traditional wires or instrumentation poking out. It's just literally just a functional form of headphone. But it's able to measure what is your productivity like? How often are you checking your phone? Are you in the flow state when certain music plays? And so it's trying to essentially give you the, the measurements so that you can better understand your own body and that you are then able to say, okay, this is how I work and this is how I not work. And how do I work around these different obstacles? And so having that sort of hardware is, is becoming much more widespread. And so I really like Neurable. Like I'm on their Discord and everything like that, but Neurotech is coming and it's, and it's going to be huge because now we aren't just limited by like pure willpower. It's like we have actual hardwired scientific measurements to act off of. And a hypothesis is only as good as your ability to test it. Yeah. How do I make money off of this? That is a good question. So I've often <laughs> wondered, how do you, how do you scale a, a neurotech company, right? Like, it seems like it's a very niche thing of like, yeah, this is really cool, but like, am I really willing to pay $200 for a headphone? So the question I ask you is, how much money are you willing to pay to improve your, your productivity, right? People buy supplements, they do like different diets and fads, and it's all to like, feel more grounded in like the best version of themselves, right? So a pair of headphones that's like $200, is minuscule compared to the compounding effect of actually being really good and building off of that. So right. for $200, obviously, you know, it's a, it's a privilege to be able to just afford it like that. But the way that you unlock your ability to do things is invaluable compared to the sticker price that you pay. Right. Right. And your productivity, uh, you know, compounded over like even two years is going to pay you back on the headphones 10 times over. Yeah, I, that's uh, that's nuts. I don't think I'm ever productive when I listen to music. That that might just be me. But depends I, on what you want to listen to. You know, if you're listening to some like hard like I really don't know. So I'm gonna listen to uh, music that are, is either in a language that I do not know or it's like an instrumental. Can we can we go back to the space thing because I have so many questions and I think you're. I don't. It's not every day that I can talk to somebody that works in space, or works in the space uh, of space. You've already made that joke. <laughs> it's not even a joke. It's a way that I am framing the thing. But, but York, so let me, you, earlier you said that you're at one of the two largest companies working in this area. You're working at Blue Origin. I'm assuming the other one is SpaceX. 
and you suggested that maybe that both of you guys are really trying to get to the moon. But it really sounds like, you know, from everything I've read, the two companies are vastly different. They have entirely different missions. They are approaching things differently. Could you speak to that a little bit? Well, actually, actually, if we could dumb this down, because I've read even less than you have this on. So I don't even know. I know that there's a bunch of companies who are working on space. I hear, I read headlines that Bezos is trying to get to the moon. Elon is trying to get to Mars. I don't know who's doing what. What is NASA doing? Like, can you give us like just a primer of the space? Yeah. So essentially, so so, so I sort of uh, touched upon this before, but the whole reason why space is commercialized and relevant again is because of electronics right like the way that rockets have traditionally been made is you know you have cnc you have five axis you have you know 3d printing which is you know a different form of manufacturing but it's really the ability to determine how well that space system is based on how many instruments you have like sensors and things and the reason we're able to instrument the hell out of these things is because sensors are so much cheaper they're much more reliable they're smaller Right. So in the same way that the, the digital age that we live in now has benefited from Moore's law is the same principle at work driving space hardware. And so that's why we were able to see SpaceX come out of, you know, seemingly out of nowhere, you know, a bunch of startup people like creating the first privatized orbital class rocket. And the funny thing is that Blue Origin was started roughly two years before SpaceX. But in today's eyes, they're seen as not even comparable to the to the rate of uh, progress that SpaceX has done. And it's primarily because in it, it's in the way that they think about things. Like Blue Origin is very much based on analysis, right? They actually hired a bunch of Rocketdyne people. And the Rocketdyne people are like super OG when it comes to rockets. Like they've been around since the 60s. So they're very analysis heavy. So they're leveraging that computing power to make accurate predictions. But SpaceX didn't have that sort of expertise in their in their field. They ended up just having to test things in order to prove whether the design worked or not. And so because I'm very test oriented, I value that test development cycle much more than, you know, purely the analysis side. But it's because of that sort of different approach that they're very different. And so the recent news by NASA to select one of the three competitors for that $10 billion contract to bring the Artemis astronauts to the moon was primarily because SpaceX embraced a test mythology. They were like, we're going to test things. We have Starship. There's going to be a lot of PR and YouTube. And that's why they're super well known. While Blue Origin is very secretive, like not a lot of people know what they're doing. And so people like to clown on Blue Origin because they just don't know what to, you know, hold up and say, yeah, this is the company that's doing it. So, so, the, so the other difference between SpaceX and Blue Origin is their, their mission. They're both mission driven companies. And so everybody knows what SpaceX is all about. It's about making humans into a multi-planetary species, right? We're trying to build a sustainable colony on Mars. Blue Origin, I think, suffers from, one, because of that secrecy. They, people don't really know what it's about. But I think the way they've talked about it is very, it's very lackluster. It just doesn't galvanize people, right? Like, people care about saving the Earth, right, to, to some certain extent. But Blue Origin is saying, hey, we're going to make life sustainable on Earth by going to space. But I think if you look at it from a different perspective, Bezos's vision for, for Earth is much more compelling for people who care about the environment. And this is, the, this is my, this is my uh, pitch for why I think environmentalists who care about the Earth should actually be rooting for Bezos, as opposed to actively just saying, like, Musk is dumb. And it's because the reason for going to space shouldn't be all doom and gloom. Like, Musk's vision of Mars is very much, if we don't do this, 
Earth is inevitably going to reach a cataclysmic event and there's no turning back. So we need to go to Mars. Bezos is as much more optimistic, but it's also based on the fact that he understands that if we were to bring everyone into what we would call like a first world living situation, right? Like plenty of access to, to markets, internet, basic utilities, all that basic stuff covered from Maslow's hierarchy, the amount of energy that is consumed will be so much more than what the earth is physically actually capable of doing. So if we just put like a hard limit and say like the amount of power that we can get from earth as it is based on current technology is let's just say like a hundred like gigatons, we would not be able to sustain that. The only way to do it is if we were to expand outside of earth and to draw on space resources. So like solar energy, asteroid mining, all these different things. If we are able to do that, then we can treat Earth as the valuable and precious commodity that it is in the entire universe, which we know to be the only source of intelligent life out there. And so Bezos's vision is really, we are saving the Earth by not draining it to its core. Musk's vision is we are gonna save humanity by going to Mars. So there's a strong difference. There's a very optimistic one and there's a very like doom is coming. But people don't realize that because Blue Origin never talks about it in that sense. The only reason I know what Blue Origin is about was because I literally wrote, uh, I literally read the letter that Bezos writes, wrote to new employees. And it's the same letter that gets sent to every new employee. So you know, like, hey, there's this culture that you need to embrace, drink the Kool-Aid, know what it's so, about. I'm glad you brought that up. I read that exact letter and up until that letter, I did not know what Blue Origin was even trying to do. I think, so just to summarize what you're saying, Elon is really just trying to get the hell out of Earth, doesn't really care about Earth as a planet, but really cares about humanity versus Bezos is trying to build space colonies on the around the orbital of Earth or outside the atmosphere of Earth, but still care about Earth, the planet. And so I think it's an important distinction because people, yeah, you're right, people just don't know which is which. Yeah. And even if you look at Blue Origin's website, even just from the, the way they talk about it, it's not explicit enough to say we care about the Earth. Like... Elon isn't saying we don't care about the earth. He's just saying we just happen to care about Mars more. But Bezos to really galvanize people and to get that support in the same sort of fanaticism and adoration that SpaceX has really needs to rebrand Blue Origin as like, hey, this is a real long-term solution. And I think it's very prescient for him to understand that if we were to get a trillion people into the solar system, even 1% of those people would be composed of people who are able to sh move the needle significantly, right? 1% of a trillion, I don't know the math, ironically, but there's going to be thousands of people who are in the same intelligence and caliber and drive and passion like Einstein, Feynman, Paul Dirac, Newton, right? The idea is to scale. He's all about scaling. And that's the very principle behind, you know, Amazon. It's all about scaling. But Musk is very much like we're going to just try to transplant somewhere else. And it's not to say one is better than the other. It's just two very dis like distinct approaches to the same problem. Got it. Got it. So where, where it is. So I think the other thing me and Faraz were talking about is there's this idea of the first layer of space technology, right? This is like building the internet for the first time. Blue Origin and SpaceX, and I guess to an extent NASA, are helping build sort of the first protocol layer of space technology. What comes in the second layer? What, what comes, what technologies are going to be built on the fruits of whatever it is you are building and whatever it is that SpaceX is building? Exactly, right? SpaceX is a transportation company, right? It's building the access to go from point A to point B. But the interesting thing is Musk's other ventures like Neuralink, Boring Company, Tesla, Starlink, these are all 
tools that build on the infrastructure of if I am confident enough to go from point A to point B, what else can I do there, right? So for example, the first person to open a Popeye's chicken on Mars has, an, has a monopoly on fried chicken, right? So you're essentially encouraging the development of an ecosystem once you are able to solve the transportation. It's very much like, you know, uh, the whole like Oregon Trail thing, right? Once you get to a place and you can settle it, you can then build the cooler stuff. But you need to first focus on making it an actual sustainable place. And then the cool stuff comes in like, you know, having like Gucci and Prada, like, you know, really fancy end things that wouldn't survive if you were just bare bones survival. So like in terms of like what other technology? Well, first, we, if we can build a, a colony there, the next thing would be, you know, what's the way to go from one colony to another? So the whole like GM and Lockheed Martin, Martin partnership of building the next lunar rover is another form of once we've established that transportation, how do we get around, right? So you got to build the infrastructure, you got to build the roads, then you got to have internet. Starlink is fantastic because it's going to show that we can provide a planet-wide coverage of internet. Now transplant that to Mars, same thing. Boring Company is all about creating roads, right? So we can't obviously, we can't live on the surface of Mars forever, just like pure radiation wise. So you need to build underground. So you have that vertical layer of infrastructure being built up. Then Neuralink comes in and says, hey, how do we actually interface with these machines in a much more intelligent and scalable way so we can prioritize the rate of improvement that we're able to do? So Musk's whole thing is like, yeah, it all seems very you know, discretized, but it's all very cohesive when it comes to a, an approach to making life as good, if not better than earth, but on an entirely different planet. And that's the genius of it is like, you don't see them connected, but they are, it's all about making life sustainable somewhere else. So let me ask you maybe a topical question. And I think I, I love what you're saying. And I think Bezos and Musk are doing God's work, you know, to an extent. So when you think about it, when NBA owners are like, I want to build a stadium in a city, the city just gives them like $500 million to build a stadium and nobody blinks an eye because they're like, well, you know, our house prices are going to increase the general local economy is going to do well. Well, this is that on like a hundred X larger sort of scale and scheme. And so the question is how much of the resources that we have publicly available to us, should we be devoting towards the Musk's and the, and the Bezos of the world? Yeah, that's, you know, that's often a criticism of the space program that, that people have. And you have to understand that, if you look at NASA purely from a budget standpoint, most people will never have a billion dollars in their life. So they think it's ridiculous that we're giving $10 billion to a private company. But if you were to compare the total budget associated with NASA, which is the most public facing aspect of the government, other than you know the executive branch, compared to the defense industry, it's not even 1%, right? $10 billion is nothing compared to what we are giving for the defense and the defense is very secretive. So you don't know how they're spending their money. And even the people worth working within the defense accounting are not entirely sure where all the money goes. So it's not necessarily a, hey, should we give money to the space program? It's how much money are they not getting so that they can actually do and create the technologies that will bring us the leaps and bounds. And so for me, it's not, hey, do we have money for space? It's we should have enough money for space and the other things that are affecting us on earth, poverty, healthcare, you know, disease, all these things can be funded at the same time. But NASA being the most public facing aspect of the government just gets the most flack. And in fact, there was a, there was a movement maybe like within the last 10 years where we were wanting to double NASA's budget. So instead of half a penny that we get out of every taxpayer's dollar, you give them a full penny. No one would bet an eye to that. And so if you were to look at, so I think there was a conversion of 
the total amount of money for the Apollo program accounting for inflation, I think in total was maybe like somewhere between like 600 to $800 billion, right? And the amount of money for each taxpayer, I think accounted for $53 a year. That's like less than six months of Amazon Prime. Yeah. And you're directly funding an agency that is literally dropping a piece of metal on a place you will probably never, ever step foot. You won't know the smell of it. You don't know what it'll look like. You don't know what you'll hear. That is amazing for $53, right? But people just don't seem to understand how the effects of space technology trickles out and is able to return an outsized ROI. So, th so there's something is, like 14%, yeah. like 14x the dollar that you give into space returns in the form of GPS or medical technology or something else. So this is, I think this is, you're making a great argument for why uh, space technology companies should really focus on branding. I mean, there is a sort of a cost to being secretive. If you are branding it well and you're making it sexy or you're making it sound like it's going to help everybody, then more people would put their votes and show up and have their voice heard uh, for the things that are going to help them. And so at the beginning, I wasn't sure, like, why does it matter whether Bezos is secretive or not? But this is the reason why. Yeah. And I think it's, it's a bit of a shame that Bezos or I don't know if it's just Bezos, but Blue Origin is very secretive, right? Like there, there's entire subreddits that are essentially always comparing Blue Origin to the other companies, specifically SpaceX. And now SpaceX having won the public's adoration in a sense with the Starship videos and receiving that $10 billion contract, they are the gold standard by everyone, by which everyone is comparing them to. And so I don't, I'm not saying like, oh, if we just became more public about what Blue Origin is doing, it'll be better. Again, it comes down to that design philosophy, right? Are we analysis heavy or are we test heavy? Are we hardware rich or hardware poor for that program? And it's really, that's the big difference. And only time will tell whether, you know, Blue Origin is going to catch up or pivot in a different way that will actually get them to the, to the level of funding and, you know, sort of fanaticism that SpaceX has. But SpaceX has a huge lead. And the time in developing hardware in space is not like five years, right? It's not like, oh, it's just five years. Five years for space hardware is a significant amount of time. It's it like, you know, you guys understand from a software perspective, you guys are able to go from concept to IPO in two years and make millions of dollars. That's the rate that you need to do in order to get space hardware. Because the cost of failure in space is so much more expensive because you can't go and service a satellite that's out in orbit. Like, obviously, there's like on-orbit satellite, you know, technology that's being advanced. But it's not like software. We can just go to a computer and just fix it. You literally can't go there. So you have to think, how do I make sure my investment actually pans out for the long duration of the mission cycle? So what, so what are some of the, the interesting technical problems that are being solved right now? Like what is, once we solve this, we're going to be 10 times closer than we were before to achieving our goals to get into space? So the, the whole, the, the biggest bottleneck right now is simply the cost of access to space. So I think if you, so, so I think an astronaut on the ISS gets paid something like $60,000 per hour, if you were to do it by like a wage, right? They're making 60K per hour. That's really, really expensive. And it's prohibitively expensive for nearly everyone. But- Sir, what do, you, what do you mean by that? Like they're not getting a salary that's 60K an hour. It just costs uh, whoever's putting them there 60K an hour to keep them up it's there. It's the cost of the space hardware. It's the cost of the, the operations of getting the space, you know, hardware all working to send them up, right? Like all of that is bundled up into- getting an astronaut to get to point A to point B, right? That's why the whole Congress of like, hey, we don't want to buy seats on the Soyuz rocket anymore, the Russian rocket, because we are literally paying so much money to get them there. But if we were to develop it on our own, we can significantly reduce that. And that's why SpaceX came in, 
they were like, we can do it for cheaper and for better. And that's why they're wildly, wildly successful. And so that's the big point of, of you know, reusability is to lower the cost of access to space such that people are able to do more in space than they were ever before. So, so in a sense, like Bezos' whole thing about, you know, the scalability of getting a trillion people into space and the whole example I brought about with uh, drones is that same idea. We have no idea what sort of entrepreneurship will exist in space until we can make that accessible for everyone. And then we're going to see who is the person who's going to move the needle? How are we going to surprise? How else are they going to bring the rest of society up? Because when you have something in space, you're now a space company. But the thing is, most people don't understand that most companies are already plugged into the space economy. They have, like, if you think about T-Mobile, about all these mobile services, television, how are they able to deliver the service? Through satellites, which means they are invested in the space economy as much as the everyday consumer. And so when we are able to give access to space, like, for example, you can pay, like, I think, I think it was Planet, some money, you can take like a photo of where you're living, a high res photo from space. And you can even do like data visualization off of that. You can even do like some sort of machine learning. So a, a concrete example is there is a conflict and a resource starvation in a certain place. How many tents do I need to put in there so that we can actually provide relief? Well, if you have an aerial view of the total square acreage that you're looking at, you can say, oh, 90% of it is occupied by trees, but 10% of it isn't. Now we can actually do pixel by pixel. This is how big, how many tents, how many things, all these things, right? The everyday person can now do things with space. And that's the big bottleneck is getting to space. It's so stupidly, stupidly expensive. So Blue Origin and SpaceX are both American companies. What is the rest of the rest of the world doing in the space? The rest of the world is trying to catch up to SpaceX. So I think Elon tweeted something like last year, SpaceX's total satellites delivered was double the rest of the entire world combined. So they are leading the charge in terms of what the new space economy will look like. They are trendsetters. They're setting the guidelines. They're setting the, the gold standards. And so the thing is, you know, people didn't believe about reusability, like not necessarily the, the technological feasibility. Can you, can you expand on that? Can you, can you kind of explain the concept of reusability in space? Yeah. So the concept of reusability is, you know, the, the most popular one is when you go on a plane and you go from point A to point B, you don't just chuck the airplane, you refurbish it, you check it, do diagnostics, health systems, all that, and then you use it again. And so there's sort of a, a, a fixed cost to developing that infrastructure to getting that vehicle. And so instead of constantly paying money to rebuild it, you just pay for the refurbishment, the operations and the refueling of it. And just to give you an example, the total cost for the propellants, the, the oxidizer and the fuel as, as, a, as a percentage of the entire budget of what it takes to build that vehicle is like $200,000. The most expensive part of a vehicle, from what I understand, is the insurance, right? Like you have the Amos 9 a satellite that was on the launch pad for a static fire for the Falcon 9, and it blew up. How do you cover that? Well, that's the insurance part. So, you know, him and Zuckerberg went at it. But reusability is just using the hardware. So you reduce the cost that it takes to do the thing so you can get more value out of it. And so SpaceX is setting that trend. They're saying, hey, not only is this technologically feasible, because like I mentioned before, the sensors to be able to do- So they, uh, they didn't do that before with, with spaceships? So the misnomer for reusability is like, yes, we can point to DCX, which was created by the McDouglas, McDouglas Dougal, McDouglas company back in like the 80s. It was basically a flying white Dorito. That was reusable, right? But the thing is the DCX never went to orbit. 
SpaceX's Falcon 9 is the first example of an orbital class reusable vehicle. Everything else has not been orbital. Like you can say the, the space shuttle was reusable, but it was reusable at the cost of costing more money to fix it up than it was to originally deploy it. So you have to prove two things with reusability. First, technological feasibility and cost. Because if you're spending more money to refurbish it, yeah, it's reusable, but it's costing you more money. So you might as well just make a new one. So the, so the, the spaceship failed in that sense. DCX failed on the, the feasibility sense. And you can even say like SSME didn't even get to orbit by itself. It had these two solid rocket boosters, you know, the big side boosters, the gem boosters, whatever. So Falcon 9 is able to do both these things. And the kicker is it's able to do it for cheaper than anybody else. They're able to do it. And they just had like their hundredth successful launch. Like if you want to talk about distinguishing a legit rocket company from all the other like, you know, posers, it's not just, hey, is the vehicle able to launch and get off the launch pad? It's, does it have flight heritage? Has it actually seen flight conditions operating in the conditions that you actually designed it for versus testing it on the ground and being like, yeah, it should work in space. No, it doesn't just work in space. It's so much harder. So SpaceX's reusability is proven that it's a thing. And now everybody is trying to do what SpaceX is trying to do. The European Space Agency was like, yeah, we're going to get rid of the Ariane 5 at some point and do a reusable thing. Elon's like, yeah, sure. I told you that before. The Chinese <laughs> are just legitimately just copying Falcon 9. Like if you look at two of the prominent space companies in China, LandSpace and I think it was OneSpace or maybe it was LinkSpace, they're both Methalox engines, but they're very, very similar to what SpaceX wants to do with reusability. But now they just get to look at, you know, SpaceX footage and be like, oh yeah, this is what they did. You know, it's obviously not that easy to reverse engineer off of just footage, but now everybody does it. Now, any company that wants to go into space and build a rocket, even the layman person, even an outsider from outside the industry will be like, so is it going to be reusable or not? It's like, Reusability is now a common term to use that if it's not part of the discussion, people will dismiss you. So it's now become normalized. And in fact, I don't even watch most SpaceX launches anymore because they landed the rocket over and over that it's no longer a miracle. It's just to be expected. Almost like this idea of reusability is just this standard that's in the back of our heads and nobody expects anything else. Like Gen Z are going to be like, oh, your rocket does it, isn't reusable. Then what the hell? Like, what do you, what's the point of all this? Yeah, I mean, people don't even look up at the sky and be like, wow, I have the privilege of paying X amount of money to sit in a giant flying metal bird. <laughs> like nobody thinks that. They, they just now complain that they didn't get pretzels on their flight, right? <laughs> so the, the, the amount of like degaff that people have to the rate of innovation is, is obviously very distanced from the people in the trenches actually doing the innovation. But that's the thing. It's normal. SpaceX is setting the bar of it has to be reusable and it has to be, you know, commercially successful as in it offers significant value to the consumer. And if you aren't doing it, then you're just not good enough. So two part question for you. Number one, how long do you think it will be before it's just like commercially possible for us to take a vacation to the moon? And how long do you think it will be before people don't even care? So the, the interesting thing is because SpaceX is setting the rate or is setting the standard for what is to be expected from a, a rocket company, they have partnered up with a Japanese billionaire. I think his name is Yusaku Maeza. He is essentially sponsoring a group of like seven other people. And they're literally going to ride on Starship and they're going to go to the moon as a commercial group, right? Like space used to be just the endeavor of governments. 
but now it's becoming commercialized so that some artists and his friends can just like go check it out and like come back to earth and be like, guys, we got to make some content, right? They're content creators with exclusive POVs on what it's like to be in space as an astronaut, looking at the moon, looking at this little blue pebble that we call our earth. And that's going to happen within the next 10 years, right? Like we are seeing people becoming invested in space, not just from a financial perspective, but from a, I can see myself as an astronaut. I don't need to go to astronaut school and, you know, go through all the rigors of a PhD and whatever requirements. It's if I'm just rich enough, I can pay that money. And eventually it's not just, am I rich enough? It's, I think I can save enough to go to the moon. So I'd say that transition will be well within the next 20 to 30 years. If, if the rate at which SpaceX and other companies are doing continues at that rate, even steadily, we will get there. It will be within our lifetimes. Like we are at the precipice of actually having the ability to look at a planet from outside of it for the first time, not through the eyes of a satellite, but with our own two meatball eyes. Yeah, I was just going to bring up, I read a really interesting uh, sort of this other point of view on space travel and which is I think it was biology or some other sort of thought leader, but they suggested that we'll come to a f- uh, the future that exists. It's going to happen much earlier than us physically going to space is one where we have the technology and instruments available to us on earth that will recreate that experience of being on the moon, like a hundred percent, like it will, you will be able to smell, feel, touch, and wh- whether that's an implant in your brain or whatever it is, but it'll create all the sensory feelings of being on the moon while you're still sitting at your in, your in your living room or something. I don't know if you know much about that or if you think that's even a realistic sort of possibility. I would say it would be realistic if we've had enough, you know, people to legitimately go to the moon and gather all that data. So here, here's a really fun joke that I really like. So Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins were such difficult actors to work with because they insisted on filming on location. <laughs> so yeah, so like the ability to capture all that data and use you know, a combination of VR and AR will definitely happen. And in fact, I don't even, I think there should be a company that does that, but they, again, they're dependent on that, that bottleneck of getting that transportation to a reliable state. But here's the thing, right? Like the small sat market, which is the market that I've primarily followed because I, I used to work for a couple of those companies is Small set? Sorry, so what's uh, what's small set? So a small set is sort of like an arbitrary distinction of like how much the payload weighs. So the purpose of a launch vehicle is to send something to an orbit, right? So the small set market started within like, it really started with SpaceX with their their Falcon 1. They were trying to deliver, I think, uh, 150 kilograms to low Earth orbit. But now we have these companies with that are adopting this Silicon Valley style of approach to designing. They are now trying to deliver something up to like 1,500 kilograms to low Earth orbit. And so, you know, there's companies that are at different intersections of that entire range. But the small sat market is primarily focused on people who want to deliver something sooner with an exclusive ride to orbit, as opposed to going through one of the bigger names like Atlas V, owned by ULA. But even SpaceX has decided to dip their toes back into the small sat market because they realized around like maybe 10, 15 years ago that the small sat market didn't exist. And the reason it didn't exist was because the, the amount of people creating small sat satellites didn't exist. So the small sat market came out of, again, the whole electronics thing, smaller, faster, cheaper. It came out of people now saying, I can build a satellite that will deliver useful data, useful telemetry for much cheaper than what it was back then. 
but I want to get to space earlier. So I'm going to find a dedicated ride to there. And SpaceX delivered a record of 143 satellites at once with their Transporter 1 vehicle, which is, I think, 14 times more than Rocket Lab. And Rocket Lab has been in operation for about eight years, and they've done 13 launches. So the payload capacity of Rocket Lab was 1 14th of what SpaceX did in one shot versus the entire duration of, of Rocket Lab. So it's, it's insane what SpaceX is able to do at cost. And Starship's ability to deliver payload would be even cheaper. Like you can say like the, the average cost to send a thousand kilograms to low earth orbit is about 10 mil. But Starship with its hundred ton capacity is opening up a market that nobody has ever thought of pursuing before. And like, just to give you an example, like rockets are really hard. Uh, okay, so like the American methodology of creating rockets is to focus on mass optimization, right? Like we want to be able to create the, the, the hardware that is as minimal mass as possible because we want to reserve all that mass, you know, being sent into space to the payload. So if you're delivering a payload that's like 100 kilograms, the error of margin for your mass is significantly higher. Like you essentially have to find a way to reduce like a thousand kilograms to like 999 kilograms or something like that. Or maybe it's like, like 800 kilograms. And you just don't have that thing. Cause once you start cutting into the mass things, you're affecting performance, you're affecting the design and it's just not doable. But if you are scaling a vehicle, if you are scaling to something like a hundred tons, that mass margin becomes so much more negotiable. You don't have to cram everything. Like the reason why satellites are so expensive is because we have to fit as much stuff as possible on a small amount of space because the amount of money it took to deliver all that small stuff to space is significantly expensive. But if Starship can deliver a hundred tons for $2 million, the way that we design satellites are gonna change. Obviously it still needs to withstand the, the environments of space, radiation, acoustics, thermal, but now we can make things that are much bulkier. So we don't have to spend so much money optimizing things. We can actually sort of do like, like a, a bulk like sloppy way of just like, oh, not enough power, just throw in another battery, as opposed to, do we have enough mass? Do we have enough connections? How many more people do we need to contract to do this redesign work? It's really expensive. So yeah, it just really comes down to cost again. Well, I can tell you that this has been an incredibly exciting and informative episode for me. You were Sagan-esque in your descriptions of space. And I have a newfound respect and interest in this. So just to wrap things up, we like to finish every episode by asking, in your opinion, what is the greatest piece of technology made either in recent history or of all time? The greatest technology. Okay. I think it's, so going back to space, I think it's absolutely amazing that the Dragon capsule that SpaceX developed to ferry astronauts to and from the International Space Station is able to autonomously dock to the ISS. Like, you're essentially trusting the machine vision and the, the software running the Dragon capsule to take you from the safest place in the universe, Earth, to literal space. And to, to do all the docking, all the safety, the transfer orbits and everything like that, I think it's absolutely amazing. Because for me, space hardware represents the cutting edge of any form of technology. It's, it's technology that you can't fix once you send out and it's technology that needs to be able to withstand the harshest environment in the entire universe. And the fact that it's able to do it by itself with minimal assistant, assistance from people sitting inside is amazing. And the fact that they're able to do it reliably is also incredible. And the fact that you can even 
come back to Earth, surviving like speeds of up to like Mach 13 with like intense heating and the people aren't roasted and they're still alive and they're like, yeah, we want to do it again, to me is amazing. So like, I know this is a, a software sort of uh, centric podcast, but like if you look at the sort of fault trees that the software running Dragon does, it's amazing. It's, it's the type of thing where if, the drag, if some aspect of the Dragon system, overall system fails, they are able to essentially shut off that part so it doesn't catastrophically spread to other things, right? It's not like a cancer where one thing fails, the entire system fails. They have this sort of built-in redundancy, right? Like, for example, the Falcon 9 has three computers that runs the same sort of software through both of them. And when some critical juncture happens where they need to make a decision, they will compare all three results to see if it's the same. And they will toss out one of those. So they have, they essentially have two out of three uh, sort of this built-in safety of assurance. And the fact that it's able to do it while actually getting input from outside the environment and, and add that into that feedback loop is absolutely astounding. So the, the people that make the software for, for Dragon and for the Falcon 9, in which, and the, the software for both the flight and the ground side are, are matching and compatible is absolutely insane. Like the, the coolest thing about a rocket is obviously the engines and the propulsion because that's the most visually striking. But again, it comes down to the electronics, the sensors, the thing that's driving, the thing, the unsung heroes of that entire space vehicle. That is the coolest thing. Cool. Yeah, I mean, this is this has been incredible. I deeply care more about space after having yeah. this conversation. And you definitely so. convinced me, you, like evangelized for Blue Origin very well. Yeah, I mean, you got to rep. Like a win for either company has tremendous outsized ROI for everybody else, right? Like regard, like obviously, you know, people like to publicize billionaire versus billionaire. Mm-hmm. But in the end, it's like, you know, a race to the bottom, right? The consumer always wins in this. Right. That's our episode for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to subscribe to us and rate us on Apple Podcasts. We would really appreciate the support. You can also follow me on Twitter at FZ from Cupertino and Vasant at NextVasant. See you guys next week.